Hey folks, just a quick word before we jump in here. We have bonus content for all of our Patreon supporters for this episode. It's bonus content for episode 222. We go behind the scenes with our guest today, that's Peter Blau, and we also have a question that we pose to each other and to our supporters for exactly what you are looking for with respect to acknowledgement. So if you don't mind, you can support us for as little as a dollar a month on Patreon. Listen for the links or click them in the show notes at ihose.co slash ihose222. Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is brought to you by MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wes Express, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wesexpress.com. I hear Sherlock everywhere, episode 222, Scuttlebutt from the Spermacetti Press. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. The game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Holder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Well, hello there, and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first Sherlock Holmes podcast where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Wolder. And Bert, do you realize that not only is this technically episode 222, but as our guest told us in the green room, it's actually episode 221B. Yes, that's why there were 17 steps to get to my desk today. <laughs> I think you should join a 17-step program, actually. Well, we are here not to discuss numbers, but to discuss words, which, of course, every Sherlockian loves. We will get right to that in a moment. Uh, in the meantime, if you would like the show notes for this episode, they are available at ihose.co slash ihose222. That's all lowercase. That'll take you directly to the IHearOfSherlock.com website to this particular episode, where you can sift through our, our narrative, you can look at uh, some of the links that we're going to share, and of course, you can decide to support us on Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help support the efforts here, which helps in production, uh, certainly helps in uh, the email costs, the web hosting costs, the sound costs, all the things associated with a major broadcast like I hear of Sherlock everywhere. For a dollar a month, I mean, who's to say you can't do that? We would certainly appreciate your support. Now, Bert, before we get into the introduction of our guest here, just wanted to share a little breaking news. I don't know if you saw uh, in the news yesterday, uh, as, our, as, as our guest slams, slams the door around there, um, we are recording on August 13th. Yesterday, the news broke that actress Una Stubbs passed away at the age of 84. Una Stubbs, of course, is uh, probably best known around these parts for playing Mrs. Hudson in the bbc series sherlock yes she is and it's sad i mean she had a wonderful career in fact she was just working recently in an, in another series wasn't she um i don't know well what i do know is that ironically one of the shows that she was known for was till death do us part and well she was true to her word i guess so uh she was a, a wonderful addition to uh, the show, and certainly part of the vernacular as not your housekeeper, dear, uh, became a widely thrown about phrase by many people who were fans of the show. And of course, Mrs. Hudson was never 
a housekeeper. She was a landlady. Uh, not to be confused with Martha later on, who, well, Vincent Starrett said was Sherlock Holmes' housekeeper in uh, in his retiring years. No actual proof that that was Mrs. Hudson, in fact. So something for us to debate for many years to come, but also Una Stubbs, an actress for uh, many Sherlockians to remember for years to come. Yes, you know it's it's it is wonderful to um, you know just remember her and and note that performance. You know, among other things, she uh, I think was an artist and um, hmm. you know had an exhibition of uh, her sketches at at one point. But she also worked most recently in a series called The Worst Witch, where she played Miss Bat. So. Uh, she had a wonderful career, and it's a shame she wasn't, I think, more, more well-known in America. Mm. Well, someone who is well-known around the Sherlockian parts is Peter Blau. Peter has been a member of the Baker Street Irregulars since the 1950s when he received his investiture Black Peter in the BSI. Since that time, he has gone on to serve as the uh, unofficial secretary of the BSI, now officially uh, known as Cartwright, I think. We'll uh, verify that with him in just a moment. And he has been producing his newsletter, Scuttlebutt from the Spermaceti Press, since, wow, decades now. We're going to talk about the origin of that, uh, how Peter puts it together, and why it is the essential uh, newsletter for the Sherlockian world. Peter, welcome back to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you. Excellent. Now, remind us, when did you receive your investiture in the Baker Street Irregulars? 1959. 59. It was a good, was a good year. It was. Well, that is that was Edgar Smith's, uh, nearly his last uh, BSI dinner, wasn't it? Yes. I think he passed away in and, 1960. And, so you knew Edgar Smith. Well, yeah, I, I met him only at, at two annual dinners. And uh, it's my great regret that he died so soon after I got my investiture because I never got the chance to ask him why he <laughs> why he brought me into the Baker Street Regulars. Uh, it was a real shock because I was I was one of the, the young punks. Well, uh, Tony Montag, Chris Steinbrenner, Jim Saunders. Uh, I think that Edgar decided the BSI was getting geriatric and decided to bring in some young punks yeah. just to see how they'd turn out. Now, Peter, if I also remember, he he may have brought, I could have this wrong, but didn't he bring you into the Baker Street Irregulars because you were able to park his car? <laughs> I don't think he drove. He took the train in every day. <laughs> I thought I thought at one point he tossed his car keys to you and and said, you know, park this for me. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, it's a Bert, different he, anecdote. Peter was a Navy man. I think you're thinking about Edgar's boat. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Peter, uh, you were with us on episodes six and seven of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere uh, back when we were. Uh, foolishly trying to keep the show to a half an hour. Um, <laughs> we split your interview into two parts. I think that was the first two-parter we did. Um, and, folks, if you haven't heard that, you can go back and listen to Peter's origin story with Sherlock Holmes. It's fascinating, uh, going back to his uh, childhood days in western Massachusetts. But, Peter, how how did the Baker Street Irregulars and you uh, make the connection. I mean, you 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 said you you got this invitation to the annual dinner. Well, how did Edgar find out about you? Well, Edgar found out about me because I had been, thanks to my father, a subscriber to the old Baker Street Journal, the old series. And when Edgar started up the new series and finally got access to Ben's uh, subscription list, uh, he wrote to my father and said. Well, he wrote to me, came to the letter, came to Fitzgerald. I was off in the Navy. And my father said, oh, fine. And just sent him a check and said, you know, send us whatever you've got. And so I was buying, thanks to my father, everything that BSI published. And I think that when uh, Edgar decided to, to reach out to some of the, the youngsters, 
that I came to mind because I certainly was a youngster in my 20s. Uh, as were all the, all of my group. So uh, I can I told you back in whatever it was episode whatever how I found the Baker Street Journal. That's right. how I found the world of Sherlockians. Yeah, but uh, I'd never met uh, Edgar. Uh, I'd written letters to him. Everybody wrote letters to Edgar, and he'd write postcards back. And I remember that one of my projects. I decided I wanted to have my issues of the Baker Street Journal bound and have my name put on the spine of each volume in Dancing Men and <laughs> discovered very quickly there is no you in the, the alphabet of the Dancing Men. So that was my first research project. I wanted to find out the rest of the alphabet. So I just started writing people. Like Ben Abramson, who suggested I write to John Dixon Carr, who suggested I write to Edgar, who suggested I write to Roland Hammond of the Dancing Men at Providence. And of course, nobody knew the complete alphabet because there wasn't one. Right. So, so much for my project. <laughs> Did you invent a U in Dancing Men? No, no. I, 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 other people have completed the alphabet. I just said, fine, we'll do it in, 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 in regular Roman alphabet yes, letters. Yes. I didn't do it at all. But. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, um, you went into the communications profession. You are a, a former journalist, a uh, consulting geologist, a professional consulting geologist. I, I don't know if you're the only one in the world, um, like Holmes and his uh, <laughs> consulting detective business. Um, but Edgar was in the communications business as well. Seems to me there are um, many Sherlockians who not only enjoy reading, but enjoy writing as well. Right. I, I don't think you can you can read with, without wanting to be able to do that yourself. Uh, it takes great self-control to avoid doing it. Uh, I claim to be one of the very few Sherlockians who has never wanted to write a pastiche. <laughs> Join the club. Yeah, me too. We should form a we should form a scion. <laughs> It'll be small. It'll be small. I guarantee. <laughs> we could have the word abstinence in it. There you go. In the title, that would be good. I like it. Abstinence makes the heart grow fonder. Um, <laughs> so, Peter, you you must have done your fair share of newsletter writing before you applied it to the Sherlockian world. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, as a geologist in the 1960s, at the end of the 60s, the oil industry was retrenching overseas. So I came back to the United States, and, and no oil company in the United States wanted to hire a geologist who didn't know anything about the geology of the United States, where I'd never worked. So I wound up working for the American Geological Institute in Washington in their science information department. And after about a year... Uh, they came to me and said, the man who's been doing our weekly newsletter is leaving. You can read and write. Why don't you do it? <laughs> so I said, okay. And I took over their uh, weekly newsletter, which is essentially written for the state geologists and others who wanted to know what was going on in Washington and uh, became a journalist. Hmm. And, and that's one of the nice things about journalism is that there's no entrance exam. If somebody hires you to be a journalist, you're a journalist. That's it. And, uh, oh, yeah, you can go and apply for a press pass or something like that, but you don't need a press pass to be a journalist. And that's how I became a journalist. Hmm. Just by accident. Well, and it seems to me that uh, one of the uh, undying characteristics of journalists is insatiable curiosity. Um, you need to ask questions. You need to ask intelligent questions, obviously. Um, but you need to know, you, you need to have this kind of burning desire to know more uh, to begin with. Uh, has, has curiosity always been something that has been part of your uh, makeup? Oh, absolutely. I think that, that, that's, that's the curse of my life. I've always been curious about things. Uh, want to find out the, the one question that you always ask is why? Mm. And I've always been interested in the why. Uh, it's the reason I like theology. It's, it's a detective story. You're trying to figure out why. Um, 
Geology is the one science that says it's I think that's one of the reasons I was attracted to Sherlock Holmes so much, is that detective stories are, are interesting. It's fun finding out what happened. Yeah, and in that, that famous interview that he did, that newsreel interview, Conan Doyle said that traditional detective stories up until that point um, never really explained how the detective got to his conclusion, uh, you know, the reasoning behind it. And that seems to me that your uh, your own interest in Sherlock Holmes would have been, um, you know, kind of tied to that ability of Conan Doyle, not only as a great storyteller, but to give us the why and the how of the uh, the approach. One of the one of the things I still remember is reading Ellery Queen's novels as I was growing up, because Ellery Queen operated on the principle he'd tell you the story and then stop and say, "Okay, you had all the clues. What's right. the answer?" And and you sit there and you say, "Wait a minute," and you'd have to go back and read it all over again to see if you could figure out what was going to what Ellery Queen's solution was going to be and Somehow I never made it. <laughs> uh, well, hey, I'm, I'm sure it was not for a lack of trying. You know, our our, our Algonquin Roundtable friend, uh, Dorothy Parker, once said that curiosity is the cure for boredom. And there is no cure for curiosity. <laughs> that, that's absolutely good. She, she said a lot of wonderful things. She did. So, Peter, back when you got this responsibility for the newsletter, um, what what were your information sources? I mean, this is a non-internet uh, world, so you're getting lots of newspapers. You're in Washington, so um, you know what? How did you pull it all together? Well, uh, uh, it started a bit more informally than that. I used to sit down at my typewriter and with a sheet of paper and every once in a while write a paragraph on it about what was happening, what I'd learned, what someone had told me. And when I got one or two pages full, I just send them off to John Bennett Shaw because John, like me, wanted to know exactly what was going on everywhere. And he would do the same. He would tell me what he'd learned. And I just call these my information sheets. And the early issues, there's no dates on them. I have no idea when I started my newsletter, but it all started thanks to John Bennett Shaw. And eventually I would do this every month. And uh, I just, people tell me things. And uh, now it's wonderful. The, the internet, I mean, you put in the Google news alert for this or that, and you're flooded with things that, that some of which are very interesting. But uh, I'd hear about new books, I'd hear about news, people, other Sherlockians. I find one of the nice things about the Sherlockian world is that people are always glad to share the news, share with their discoveries. Uh, that's what the, the, the Baker Street Journal, the Sherlock Holmes Journal is full of, what people have discovered. And it's, it's fun to share that. Yeah. So that's all I do. Well, but but that's a lot. So, how did you come to pick John? How did how did you come to pick of all the people you could have picked? How did you pick John Bennett Shaw? Well, I don't. I, I'm not sure I picked him. I think it just excuse me just happened. John was the sort of person that, that once you discover John, uh, he's a friend. Uh, very, there's very 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 few people that didn't like John Bennett Shaw. Uh, John and I uh, loved when we we get together. We'd love to talk about other Sherlockians. There are always one or two Sherlockians that you want to have nothing to do with. They're just awful people, but there are great stories about them. So John and I decided that we would divide them into two groups, and there was no reason for both of us to have to put up with these people. So I'd put up with some, and he'd put up with the others, and then we exchanged stories about them. <laughs> and and did you and, meet? And, and did you meet sorry. John at a did you meet John at a BSI dinner? When when did no, you first meet John? Uh, we just we just corresponded, and I, I I don't somewhere I've got my first letter from him, and 
his first letter from me is up in Minneapolis because that's where his correspondence is. But I have no memory of what we corresponded about. Uh, either he wrote to me with a question or I've heard about him wrote to him with a question. But I wound up in Oklahoma uh, and as a geologist and went up to Tulsa to meet him. I wanted to meet this guy. And it was wonderful. And it, it, he had his nice big house in Tulsa um, over the Shaw Funeral Home. And <clears throat> I went into John's library, big room, lined with bookshelves. And first, it was the largest private library I'd ever been in my life. And I discovered in my horror that all of the shelves were doubly filled. There were books in front of books. And I never, I'd never seen this. I'd never seen anything like this before. It seemed like a bad idea to me. I thought books want to be seen. And, you know, I said to John eventually, you know, you should, you can't see all of your books. And uh, within a year and a half, he had gotten rid of his G.K. Chesterton collection and his Isaac Dennison collection and focused on Sherlock Holmes. But I walked on the shelves because I like to look at other people's collections. I always find something I didn't know about. And I found a, uh, a copy of uh, Henry Lauritsen's Minkera Watson, my dear Watson, in which they have Henry's little caricatures, of canonical characters. And... I said to John, I said, I've never seen this before. I know about the caricatures because some of them were in the Baker Street Journal, but I've never seen the book. And he said, I think there's two copies there. And yes, there were. So I took them both out. He said, which is the better one? And I said, this one. And he said, okay, put that one back and you can have the other one. <laughs> wow. And that was my introduction really to John Bennett Shaw and how much he loved to share things. Now, Peter, if he, was a, if he was a real friend, he would have given you the better copy. <laughs> no, no, no. no. There's, there's limits. There's limits. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what happens? So you would, you would be sending these things to John. So it's a wonderful story. So I can imagine you have this sheet in your typewriter, and occasionally you're adding to it, and it's probably on a file folder. And, and every so often you would uh, – sum it all up because in those days there's, there's no copying machines. So you've got probably got carbon paper or something. So how well, the, the, the photo, your photocopier had been invented in 1970. Okay. The, uh, but, but in those days I didn't need a photocopier because I would just sit and write a couple of paragraphs and put the sheet aside, write a couple of more when one sheet or two sheets was filled I put them in an envelope and sent them to John. Uh, and it wasn't until later. Uh, Ron DeWall, on one of his bibliographing trips to Santa Fe, discovered my newsletter and wrote to me and said, gee, you know, you've got all sorts of news in there about things that are being published. Uh, please send me a copy. So uh -huh. I started making photocopies. And I sent one to Ron DeWall. And then Cameron Hollyer heard about it. He wanted a copy. And then other people heard about it, and I wound up sending out 10 copies of my newsletter. And I kept getting letters from people saying, Dear Mr. Blau, please send me your newsletter. And this was or, about what, what year, uh, Peter? What, what year was this? these 10 issues? I can't remember. I can't okay. remember. Probably later on in the 70s. Late 70s. Okay. And uh, occasionally someone would say, here's a dollar, please send me your newsletter. And I decided that, that no, I, you know, I was going to go to publishing. I just, this was a sharing stuff. So I'd say no. And people would whine and whimper. <laughs> and fortunately... Ted Schultz at that time, who did get a copy. Uh, he was either principal or assistant principal in a high school in San Francisco, and he had access to a photocopier. So he would take my newsletter and shoot it down half size, two pages per page, and send it out to anybody who wanted it. And then I got a letter, plaintive letter from a collector who was getting the second generation copy. And he, he said in great despair that by the time he got my newsletter, all the good stuff was gone. So he wanted, he wanted, 
is available at Quick. And that's when I decided, well, I probably should publish it. So I did the careful calculation and figured that every month copying it and mailing it would cost me $6. And that's what I charged for my newsletter when I first started publishing, $6 a year. And uh, it was just information sheets. And I bailed them out and people sent me $6. I was never really sure why, uh, because it was just gossip. But it kept going. And finally, uh, Phil Schreffler, when he was editing the Baker Street Journal, said that he wanted to stop doing all of the gossip in the BSJ. And he wanted to do scholarly stuff and, and real articles. So he said, why don't I just tell people to get your newsletter? What What's the name of it? And I didn't have a name for it, so I had to name the newsletter, the Scuttlebutt from the Spermacetic Press. Uh, Norm Chattel, lovely artist. He wanted to do a masthead. I thought that was too formal. So now I was in the publishing business. <laughs> and then, then I discovered that Ron DeWall was doing really good at publishing his bibliography. And I was worried because while the $6 covered my cost, it was worth taking this, getting it photocopied and stuffed in the envelopes and all that. So I asked John Bennett Shaw to check Ron DeWall's three by five file cards the next time Ron was in Santa Fe. And if he found a file card for my newsletter, take the file card out and throw it away. <laughs> Why? Because I'm sure I was sure that if this wound up wound up in the in, in his bibliography, then I'd be flooded with people asking for copies and it was too much work. Hmm. And I think John I think John did this three times and three times Ron put it back and um, finally everybody knew about it. And I wound up with almost four hundred subscribers to my newsletter. And uh, fortunately, then they invented the internet. Well, there you so, go. It's, look, it's yeah. it's uh, clear proof that it's hard to keep a good bibliographer down. <laughs> um, well, we will get into more about Scuttlebutt from the Spermaceti Press and uh, more chats with Peter right after this quick break. Arthur Conan Doyle wrote 22 novels. The one he thought his best is an adventure story of knights and chivalry. 20-year-old Alan Edrickson travels the world encountering bullies, con artists, thieves, a damsel in distress, and two men who become his closest friends. Together they join the White Company, archers and fighters led by the gallant Sir Nigel Loring. Will our hero win the hand of Loring's romantic daughter Maud? Will the chivalrous Prince Edward restore Peter of Castile to his Spanish throne? Published in 1891 and never out of print, The White Company is a tale of pageantry and piracy, heraldry and hope, published now in an exclusive, annotated edition with the original N.C. Wyeth illustrations in blazing color. Don't you owe it to yourself to read Conan Doyle's favorite book? Get the annotated White Company at wessexpress.com. All right, we are back talking with the Hedda Hopper of the Sherlockian world. Uh, Peter, you, you mentioned that um, uh, you, you, uh, you were suggested, I think it was by uh, Phil Schreffler, you said, uh, that the newsletter needs a name. How did you arrive at the name Scuttlebutt from the Spermaceti Press? Getting to the why here. Okay, well, it was easy. There already was a Spermaceti Press because when I started doing my seasonal souvenirs for the annual dinners of the Baker Street Regulars, uh, Delusions of Grandeur, I knew that everybody had their own private press. Uh, of course, you know, Edgar Smith had the pamphlet house and, and um, Dean Dickensheet had the bone press. And none of us actually had printing presses. It's just a name for you as a publisher. The only Sherlockian I know 
who actually did have a printing press was John Rule. And he published stuff from his Pequod press. And by God, he had a printing press. He had a house, a five-story house on the side of the hill. And the printing press and all of the type were in the bottom. Because if it was on the top and there was an earthquake in California, everything would have come down on top of it. But the Spermistetic Press was easy because <clears throat> I lived at that point on Holmes Road in Pittsfield, just down the street from Arrowhead, where Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick. And there actually is, was, and still is such a thing as a Spermistetic Press. When you got the Spermistetic from a whale, uh, you put it in a press and squeezed out all the spermaceti oil, and from that you made the best candles in the world. And there is today still one surviving spermaceti press in a whaling museum in, in New Bedford. So, okay, so I said my news, my, my seasonal souvenirs are coming from the spermaceti press. And when it came time to name my newsletter, I figured it was just gossip. Well, I do that in nautical terms, scuttlebutt is gossip because uh, the butt was a water barrel on an old ship and the scuttlebutt was gossip because people stand around a water barrel and, and gossip in those days just the way they stand around the water coolers and gossip in today's office. Uh, if there still are water coolers, I've been in an office in a long time. If there are still offices, right. Um, <laughs> but what... How wonderful, Peter, that you're able to kind of follow this thread of uh, things having to do with the whaling industry from from John Rule's uh, Pequod Press. Uh, of course, the Pequod being uh, the ship that uh, Captain Ahab uh, uh, commanded. Uh, your own uh, investiture in the Baker Street Irregulars as Black Peter, uh, a famous harpooner and captain, uh, all the way up to uh, naming the newsletter. I mean, what a wonderful red thread uh, throughout. Well, it's 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 fun to make connections. It is. It is. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I just say that's that's what you two do, week after week after week. You connect things. So that's why people tune in to listen. Well, that's they want to be connected. That's exactly. It's it's making connections and making collections. You know, I mean, what you do with the newsletter is really the art of curation. Um, you know, you talked about being a journalist, and in a number of cases, journalists have to go and chase down primary sources. They have to craft things themselves. Most of what you get, what what where the uh, the newsletter started was collecting information from other people and then figuring out how to organize it in a way that is appealing to people. So talk to us a little bit about your own kind of sense of, of curation, not only with the newsletter, but maybe in your own collection or in your life uh, more broadly. Well, to me, the, the prime need for curation is in journalism. One of the terrible things that's happening today because of the internet and social media is that there is so much information available and a lot of people don't know how to sort out the real information from the unreal information. Uh, it's the old, well, I, I saw it on the internet, so it must be true. Uh, and, and journalists, what I call real journalists, know that's not true. Uh, one of the great things about print journalism is that you have editors sitting there saying to you, are you sure? Is that right? Uh, double check this. Uh, treble check that. Because a good journalist knows that if you put something in print, it better be right. And every journalist makes mistakes, so you correct them. And uh, my things in my newsletter... Uh, there are occasional typos uh, and mistakes. I'd like to tell people that I deliberately put one typo in each issue just for <laughs> people to catch typos. Yeah, you know, but, I, I uh, found the, the most foolproof <clears throat> method of finding typos in my own newsletter is a single button, and it's marked send. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
surefire way. So, Peter, you, you know, I mean, you, you basically are using Sherlock Holmes's method, uh, you know, where he turned to the irregulars and said, look, uh, go out there and uh, see everything and overhear everyone and report back to me. Um, I'm sure you have sources uh, all over the Internet uh, where people send you information not only, I mean, you have Google Alerts set up yourself, but you probably have a, a network of people who know to send you information for Scuttlebutt on a regular basis. How do you how do you sort all that out? Uh, I look at it and I decide whether it's interesting. Uh, and then I find a lot of things interesting. People love, I find out the, the best way to get people to send you information is to put their names in your newsletter. So every once in a while, I like to say, so and so reported, so and so recorded, so and so has told me. Uh, you can't keep people sending you things if you don't say thank you publicly. So that is a trick. Uh, always say thank you. That's the one thing, one of the things that John did so well. John Bennett Shaw always said thank you. Uh, if you sent John Bennett Shaw, a pamphlet or a book or something, he'd say thank you and send you something in return because he always had duplicates. Uh, John, one of the things I learned from John is never to tell someone, oh, I already have a copy of that. Just say thank you and then re-gift the extra copy to someone. <laughs> That's pretty smart, actually. And <laughs> when you think about how uh, museum curators or uh you know library curators when they when they mount displays uh when they when they when they have uh, exhibitions um and you know this is even going back to the 1951 Sherlock Holmes exhibition there is a credit in the description of the item who donated this item who it is on loan from and that is very much a public acknowledgement a public thank you to the donor or the lender who made that possible. Peter, um, one of the things I just wanted to ask you about, you, you know, you just mentioned your, your rule of putting things, your, well, I don't know, not a rule really, but how you fell into this, you know, you'd find things that were, you'd find things that were interesting that you would put in the, in the newsletter. And then Scott asked earlier, you know, about curation. I'm just curious, but really two things. Do you find everything interesting? Are there things that, you know, you, you, you've never written a pastiche, but there are, are there things that you would, that you would leave out. And I'm also curious about your own collection. I mean, um, uh, you know, is there, is there sort of a theme for the things that you happen to collect? So, um, you know, what's your thinking about that? Okay. Uh, the collection part is easy. I, I keep saying what I learned from John Bennett Shaw. John is the one who was like to say that he collected with all the selectivity of a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> uh, if it was Sherlockian, he was glad to have it. You reach a point, as I have, where, where you just can't be bothered with things. So I have stopped worrying about statues and figurines. And uh, I think I have uh, one Sherlockian chess set is enough because <laughs> I don't play chess. Um, John loved statues and figurines and things like that. Uh, one of the things I do not collect is um, video games. And I don't report on I don't review them in my newsletter because I don't play them. So I, I, how, do you, how can you, re you review a book you haven't read or review a video game that you haven't played? There's just too many. You know, oh, wow, this is a wonderful game. Only takes 32 hours to solve the problem. And all I can say is 32 hours, I'd rather do something else. <laughs> so you won't find anything about board games or video games in my newsletter. And so far, nobody has been sufficiently upset about this to say, well, I'll do that. So, um, well, we, my general response. We are fortunate. To say, yeah. Sorry, we are fortunate that you uh, do occasionally listen to podcasts. So <laughs> we've we've made it in there once or twice. I'm glad I'm glad you finally realized the way to guarantee that you'll be mentioned in my newsletter is to interview me. <laughs> 
it's taken us long enough to catch on. You're you're okay. you're a, you're an original, Peter. You're from season one. <laughs> yes, you're you're not even you're not even a fa- a paperback reprint. You are the original um, Peter Ebel. This is not the photocopied yeah. Peter. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Peter, uh, the the newsletter it looks like has been in constant publication since nineteen, at least in in wide circulation since about nineteen eighty five. Is that Correct. Uh, well, 1985 is when I got my computer, my personal computer. Okay. And started writing it on, on electronically. Okay. And eventually, I got a dial-up connection to the internet, and realized that I could send this to people by email. This was at a time when the internet was controlled by the National Science Foundation, which was. Uh, as a government body, very strictly non-commercial. And there was a rule that you could not use the Internet for commercial purposes. Hmm. So I sent my copy of my newsletter to someone at the National Science Foundation and said, you know, this is not a commercial operation, but I do talk about things that are for sale by other people. Is that okay? And somewhere I have the official letter from the National Science Foundation saying that my newsletter met their qualifications to be sent on the Internet. And it is very hard to imagine today a time when the Internet was non-commercial. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Well, and, and, uh... so I, I, don't know when, I don't know when my first issue went out by email, but now almost all of my subscribers are just readers on the internet. I have no idea how many people read my newsletter on the on the, on the World Wide Web uh, because I don't care. <laughs> but well, how many still I subscribe still, via via mail the, through the postal system? My my print run is around forty nine at the moment, and it's a real mystery because almost all of those forty nine people have computers and access to the internet. <clears throat> and for some reason, they're willing to pay now a lot more than $6 a year to get envelopes in the mail every month with a newsletter in it when it would be cheaper for them to go online to the website and print it out themselves if they wanted a paper copy. But they're willing to pay me money for the privilege of receiving an envelope in the mail 12 times a year. And I don't understand that. There are a couple of people who literally, well, one of them doesn't own a computer, and the other one won't read anything that has been printed out from the computer. So even though his wife will print out my newsletter for him, he won't read the printout because it came from the computer. So there are two people who really have to receive copies of my newsletter in the mail. And as far as I know, the rest of them, they just want to. Well, please don't tell that gentleman how the book publishing industry has changed. <laughs> um, well, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I, I would imagine there are uh, probably a number of collectors in there who uh, like to get that. But as you note, uh, it, is, uh, it is available electronically as a PDF. You can certainly print it out. Uh, for folks who would like to read it, it's available at redcircledc.org. Uh, and the... Um, the original issues, I think going back past 2012, are available on Sherlocktron, uh, which is uh, yeah. an original BBS service, I think, that started carrying Scuttlebutt. We carried it for a little while on IHearOfSherlock.com, um, but that is the definitive place to find it. We will have links to both of those, to the Red Circle site and the Sherlocktron site, if you'd like to take a look at Peter's newsletter yourself. And there are perhaps some of our listeners who have a flexible and elastic relationship with time and are saying to themselves, you know, if only this newsletter could be brought together on an annual basis so I could read all of the issues at once. Well, Ross Davies is scanning the paper copies of Peter's newsletter and presenting them in his Baker Street uh, almanac annually, so that's available too. 
Well, actually, the Baker Street Almanac version of my newsletter is unique because Ross Davies discovered that the newsletter that I send out at the end of every month, if there are mistakes, the mistakes get corrected in the archival copy. So if you go to the website now and look at a past issue, mistakes have been corrected. And Ross wanted to be able to reprint the absolute first edition. So I have to mail him a copy, which he then publishes every at the end of every year. And that is the only place you can go now and see my uncorrected newsletter. Hmm. That's for the true collectors. And if you'd like to hear Absolutely. if you'd like to hear Ross talking about uh, the Baker Street Almanac that is available just uh, a few previous epi- episodes ago, I think it was episode 219 where Ross joined us. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Peter, you've you've been in the Baker Street Irregular since 1959. It is now 2021. You were invested as Black Peter. Is it, I mean, we should maybe be referring to you as, as Silver Peter now. I don't know. Um, <laughs> how, how much longer do you think you're going to be able to keep doing this? And what does the future of Scuttlebutt from the Spermaceti Press hold? Uh, my basic answer is I have no idea. I tell people I intend to go on forever. I see no reason to stop. Uh, I'm happy to look at the newspaper today, this morning, and see a, a picture of a nice man who's 100 years old, and he's standing on his own two feet and very happy about it. And so I've got something to look forward to. I cannot imagine that anybody will ever say, whoops, the scuttlebutt ought to continue, so I will take over. Uh, I figure it'll go with me. And and uh, I don't know if good riddance is the right term. Or not. <laughs> well, look, it it is such a uh, an inextricable part of the Sherlockian world. I mean, it used to be said that if Peter doesn't know about it, it's not happening. Um, <laughs> I, I I mean, it, it, eventually. I mean, and we have to think about what the future holds. I mean, this is part of what uh, keeps organizations going. Um, there, there's got to be some kind of desire for this, somebody that can make sense of the cacophony of the Internet for us, uh, specifically with Sherlockian desires in mind. Um, I know, you know, if you look to Bert and, and to me, yeah, we might be insane enough to do that, but our milieu is really, uh, our medium is, is audio. Um, but gosh, I, it's hard to imagine a world without, scuttlebutt from the spermaceti press at this point well to me there's there's, there's two ways to look at it one is always the future lies ahead and who knows but the other is when you think about the past a great quotation I like is posterity what the hell what has posterity ever done for me <laughs> <laughs> What have the Romans ever done for us? I know, right? <laughs> well, look, it's been a great model that you have built, Peter. I think it's uh, certainly entertained, informed, um, kept a lot of people interested over the years, and uh, we're hoping that uh, it will continue for many years to come. And thank you for doing what you do for the Sherlockian community at large. Well, thank you in return. I, I one of the nice things about the Sherlockian world is that there are so many people with so many different interests who are willing to do some work, as the two of you are with your your podcasts. Uh, there was a time when there wasn't any way to listen to Sherlockian's talk except to go to a Sherlockian meeting. Right. Uh, now, stuff's all over the Internet. It's amazing. You can't escape it. It's amazing. I know. Well, this has been a uh, a rare treat for us, Peter. Thank you, and uh, hope to speak to you again at some point uh, more. Thank you, more more uh, urgently than uh, fifteen years. Okay, well, aim for episode uh, 
323B. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All righty. Okay. Many we... thanks and farewell. Isn't that, what can you say about talking to Peter? It's like a holiday. You know, it really is wonderful, and it, may, it reminds me of how much I miss seeing him in person. Hopefully, in the months ahead, weeks ahead, we'll be able to do that. But, uh, you know, you talk about the basis of the Baker Street Irregulars and that old phrase, you have the right to go everywhere, see everything, observe it all. Peter really has gone everywhere, observed everything, sees it all. I thought you were going to say you have the right to remain silent. Um, <laughs> and that is, that is nothing that applies to Peter. I mean, he is uh, the raconteur extraordinaire. He's got a story for everything. And I, I think this is part of his, uh, his, his curiosity. I mean, uh, my wife, Mindy, still bristles at the thought of, the the first time she met Peter, and in the classic Peterese, he turned to her and said, "Now, what makes you interesting?" <laughs> and she was she was flabbergasted to be put on the spot like that, and and she kind of stumbled for a little bit. And I think Peter is the kind of guy who finds so many things interesting and so many people interesting that he in turn makes it interesting for us. Yes. Well, you know, I need to write down the words snappy repartee on an index card and carry it around. So if Peter ever asks me, I can say, wait a second, hold on a minute. It's because of my fast response and snappy repartee. That's a good one. I like that one. I have a card uh, from a friend. She used to carry these in her wallet, a little smaller than business size. Uh, but she used to carry them in her wallet for when she traveled on the plane and she would hand it to someone next to her who, <laughs> who, who wouldn't stop yapping. And the, the card simply says, stop talking. <laughs> now, I wonder what her experiences were passing those things out. I'll find out and get back to you. <laughs> right now, I have to stop, stop talking. talking. <laughs> You know, there's never a lack of things to talk about when it comes to our friends at MX Publishing. It is 2021, and they continue to crank out some amazing titles. Most recently, we have uh, The Magnificent Madness of Tessa Wiggins. It's the third book to feature Sherlock Holmes's protege. You can find out how she follows in his footsteps. There's Hounded, my lifelong obsession with Sherlock Holmes and the Hound of the Baskervilles. You know, under this pandemic, we've all had to make our own way and find our own hobbies. And Vince Staden consumed every version of the Hound he could lay his hands on, even the bad ones. And this is his story. And of course, there's Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of the Amazonian Explorer. This is an original adventure featuring Sherlock Holmes and it's a theater production with Jonathan Goodwin playing Holmes in the style of Jeremy Brett. This is the first time that our friends at MX Publishing have had a campaign to support Sherlockian theater. All three of these are available via Kickstarter, and we have the links to each one of them in the show notes. Check them out at ihose.co slash ihose222 or through mxpublishing.com. Ah, well, we've stopped talking, and we're going to start playing. Playing the music here, of course. It's a theme to Canonical Couplets, the Sherlockian quiz game that you all love playing as well. It's one we've been doing for quite some time, and one that actually, well, probably sees no end in sight. Now, as I was thinking about what we are going to offer for this episode's Canonical Couple, I was initially thinking, well, we could offer a subscription to Peter's newsletter. <laughs> but that's free. So uh, this time around, it will be something from the vaults of the IHOS collection here. Uh, Tony Katroki has been great at sending things in. So we, we have something. It's a mystery gift, but it will be worth your while. It may be more than 
one-on-one thing, too, as we bundle some of them up and put them your way. So stay tuned in just a moment. Now let's revisit what we had last time around for the canonical couplet. The lantern showed a servant squatted on his knees. It seems a housemaid scarpered to a land beyond the seas. Bert, what do you make of that? What, what, what canonical story is that? Oh, that's a great case. One of my favorites. It's the case that begins when Mycroft was served an overcooked pudding. Okay. It's the case they called the creeping flan. Oy. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. <laughs> no, it, it is it is not flan, creeping or not. Uh, in this case, we were thinking of, um, gosh, the, the Musgrave Ritual. That's right, oh. the Musgrave Ritual. Yeah. Close. Yeah. Well, a number of people answered this, including, of course, our faithful compa- compatriot, uh, Eric Deckers, who said it's the story of Sherlock Holmes uh, when he tried to solve the mystery of the murdered hot dog vendor by using a medium to contact his spirit and name the killer. It's the mustard spiritual. (laughs) (laughs) Oops, that's strike one. The actual story is the Musgrave ritual, writes Eric. Well, Eric, of course, you are correct. And so were a number of other people. So we're going to bring out the big prize wheel and give it a spin. Watch it go around there. And seeing it rest on number... Oh, 21, as in canonical 221. That's fantastic. And that means the winner is Shelly Gage. Hey, Shelly, congratulations. We will have, uh, look, we have, uh, look, that is, uh, gosh, remind me. Oh, the, the year subscription to the Baker Street Journal. We will put your name on the rolls of subscribers for the Baker Street Journal to make sure that you get your regular copies in the mail. So thanks for that, Shelley. And now it's this episode's canonical couplet. Bert, are you ready? I'm ready. I've got my pencil. All right, let's jump in. The dead man lay upon his back, a scene of blood and gore. The old wheel turns, the spoke appears. It's all been done before. If you know which Sherlock Holmes story this was inspired by, send it in an email to us at comment.ihearofsherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct entries and we choose you at random, you will win. Good luck. All right. Well, I can't wait to see what we pull out of the iHose vaults for that. Mm-hmm. Mm. A few coins of rusty metal, no doubt. Three coins and a fountain, maybe. Mm. Well, well, we will be back here at the end of the month on August 30th with episode 223. It is, shh, it's a secret episode. Secret episode. Yeah, it's like silent movie. Shh, shh, I can't tell you. It'll be good, though, I promise. I promise. We're going to be sending out our decoder rings to all of our Patreon subscribers yes and with that this is little orphan scotty (laughs) (laughs) really threw you off with that one (laughs) yeah i guess that just makes me daisy may walder well fantastic or or better yet i could just be oh daddy walder i could be daddy war walder daddy warbuck walder i don't know yeah well our transcription people are going to have a real great time with that (laughs) Well, in the meantime, we bid you adieu and remind you that the the game's game's afoot. (laughs) The The game's afoot. You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. 
Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes.